Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 348, Novations on the Trinity, Part 2, Two Thieves and Three Arguments. Novation spends a lot of this book proof-texting, but I think we really get into the meat of his theology and Christology in chapter 30, where he is really forced to confront the arguments of his opponents. So I'm going to read you a portion of that chapter. It's what I call the Two Thieves Passage, and it includes three fascinating arguments that we're going to dig into in this episode. I have, only after releasing part one of this two-part series, received in the mail the most recent translation of Novation's book on the Trinity. This was published in 2015 by Dr. James L. Papandrea. I had to order it from Europe, and it took a couple of months, so it's not the most accessible publisher, but I think the translation is somewhat better, although it doesn't address the ambiguities I discussed last time regarding the word deus. And I'll put a link to this newest translation on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Anyway, for this episode, I'm going to continue using the translation I quoted from last time, the 1974 one by De Simone. In fact, the heretics who say that Jesus Christ is himself God the Father, as well as those who would have had him to be only a man, have drawn from Scripture the elements and the reasons for their error and perversity. For when they observed that it was written that God is one, they thought they could not hold such a belief unless they thought they should believe that Christ was a mere man, or that he was really God the Father. Wherefore, they were accustomed to put their calumnies in syllogistic form, to try to justify their own error. Now, the heretics who say that Jesus Christ is the Father argue as follows. If God is one, and Christ is God, then Christ is the Father, because God is one. If Christ is not the Father, while Christ the Son is also God, then two gods seem to have been introduced, contrary to the Scriptures. On the other hand, the heretics who maintain that Christ is only a man syllogize from the opposite position in the following manner. If the Father is one, and the Son another, And if the Father is God, and Christ is God, then there is not one God, but there are two gods introduced on an equal footing, the Father and the Son. If there is one God, then Christ must be a man, so that the Father may rightly be the one God. Indeed, the Lord is crucified, as it were, between two thieves, just as he was once crucified. Thus, he is exposed on either side to the impious revilings of these heretics. First of all, let's notice the rhetorical moves that are happening here. They are worth pointing out. These guys are impious. They're not pious. They have no proper respect for God and his son. Really? Why should we think that? Why should we agree with that? Just because Novation lobs that little accusation out there? I don't think so. It looks like what logicians call an ad hominem fallacy. In other words, an attack on the person, which is irrelevant. It's the claims that are at issue, and it does nothing to prove or refute claims to make a personal attack on someone who holds those claims. An ad hominem fallacy is a fallacy of irrelevance. (laughs) They're thieves? What? They're stealing from God? Or they're stealing from Jesus? What does that even mean? In the footnotes of his translation, Dr. Papandrea suggests that the idea is that the one side, the modalistic monarchians, want to steal Christ's humanity, and on the other side, the dynamic monarchians want to steal his divinity. Yeah, maybe that's his thought. Although I'm not sure that the modalistic monarchians would agree, just because they're collapsing together the Father and the Son, that the Son is not human. But anyway, this talk of stealing, it's just kind of silly rhetoric, right? It's not literal stealing. 
It's not absconding with property that belongs to somebody else. At worst, they're making bad mistakes in their Christology, right? They're not stealing. Right? It's just rhetoric to refer to them as thieves. It doesn't make a lot of sense either, since one of the thieves, according to Luke, repented on the cross and so was going to live in the kingdom, according to Jesus. So <laughs> he wouldn't want to apply that much charity to his opponents. Anyway, are these impious revilings? I don't think so. I think these are mainstream Christians looking at the New Testament as a whole and trying to make sense of it. And yes, they are trying to understand how Jesus could in some sense be divine or in some sense be called God, even though there's only one God, the Father Almighty. Like the Creed says, and like the New Testament everywhere assumes and sometimes asserts. And more importantly, notice that he's portraying their views as based on, quote, syllogisms. You know, fancy pants, philosophical arguments. Really? Were they primarily based on philosophy? Or were they based on an honest attempt to understand scripture as coherent with itself? Let's see how many distinctively philosophical elements there are in the arguments at hand. He also suggests that they're just stupidly assuming something which scripture requires us to deny. Really? Now, as the passage continues in a part I didn't read, he goes on to pound the table that his position is just obviously implied by Scripture. Well, of course it isn't obvious, otherwise there wouldn't be these opponents. And he lobs the lazy objections that his opponents are just stubborn, or maybe they're spiritually blind. And also, only his views take into account all of Scripture. Right? Are you starting to hear echoes of James White here? Later also in chapter 30, he kind of lazily urges that in a few texts, Christ is referred to using the word God in Latin Deus, which, as we heard last time, he elsewhere admits doesn't support that Jesus is divine or that Jesus is God himself. You could be referred to as God or as a God and not have the divine essence and not be God. You might be, for instance, an angel or a certain human, as in Old and New Testaments. Overall, Novation's presentation of his opponent's views is surely unfair on multiple fronts and must be question-begging. There are many things that he says that just assume the very point at issue, like that his position is obviously implied by Scripture. Well, that's the very thing that they would deny, but we're not going to hear more from them, really. No doubt his opponents would mount a complex set of arguments for their own theology and Christology based on Scripture, specifically based on what they think are some clear passages. They are not going to just throw out a few simple deductive arguments and then spike the ball, as if those arguments by themselves settle it. Of course, to evaluate the truth of the premises in those arguments, one will have to go to Scripture, because surely his opponents agree with him about what the scriptural authorities are, more or less. I don't think there was a fully settled New Testament canon in this time, but I do think that Christians pretty much universally had the four Gospels and had some of Paul's letters. Still, despite how biased and compacted his report is, I still think it's valuable to consider this report. It gives his analysis of their reasoning, because I think it'll shed some light on their opinions, and just as importantly, light will be shed on Novation's opinions on the sort of opinions that could be had by a person considered to be, and who almost was, the Bishop of Rome in the first half of the 200s AD. If we want to know what these other people thought who were not Logos theorists like Novation, well, beggars can't be choosers. Because their writings are lost, we're basically always relying on hostile reports when trying to discern the views of Christians in the 2nd and 3rd centuries who rejected the new Logos speculations. Since the 1800s, historians have referred to these as modalistic monarchians and dynamic monarchians, as I explained in the last episode. So now I'm going to go back and read the arguments that he threw out there There were two modalistic monarchian arguments and one dynamic monarchian argument, and I've got my analyses of these arguments on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, so you might want to look at that and follow along as I'm going through them. He states them all too succinctly, but clearly enough, I think. 
And we can apply tools of current day logic that I think will clarify the structure of the arguments a little more. So the first modalistic monarchian argument I call a direct argument because it just says, here are some premises, and then here is a conclusion that directly follows from those premises. Let me again read you the translation, then I'll read you my analysis of the argument. So again, this is the direct modalistic monarchian argument. If God is one and Christ is God, then Christ is the Father because God is one. So the conclusion, clearly, is that Christ is the Father. In other words, the conclusion is identifying Christ with the Father. Those are one and the same. Now, the first premise is, in his words, God is one. What does that mean? It means that God is unique, okay, but unique in what way? Unique in being a God. He's unique in Godhood. He's the only one of that kind. So, the meaning of this slogan, God is one, I suggest is really the proposition that there is exactly one God. And I've got God there in lowercase because it's a common noun. It's a general kind term rather than a name or a title. So here's my analysis. Premise one, there is exactly one God. Just to explicate that a little bit, what it's saying is that there is something which is a God. That's the one God part. Now for the exactly part. And for anything whatever, if it is a God, then it just is the first mentioned thing. So to say that there's exactly one God is to make two claims. First, you're claiming that there is a God, and second, you're saying that anything which is a God just is that first thing. So that's how you get the only one part, or the exactly one part. So it's a compound claim to say that there is exactly one God, but that's fine. Second premise, Christ is a God. How do they mean that? I think they mean it in the sense of classifying. So, remember, just by definition, a god is a thing which is a divine nature, or which has the fullness of divine nature, has it in its completeness. So, to say that Christ is God is to say that Christ is divine, but it's divine in the sense that implies being a god, okay? And then I think there's an implicit premise here, which is considered so obvious that it doesn't need to be stated, but this premise is required to have a valid argument. It's required for the conclusion to follow. And that premise is that the Father is a God. And surely that is a background assumption of the modalistic monarchians. Okay, so the whole argument, there's exactly one God, Christ is a God, the Father is a God, therefore Christ just is the Father. Christ and the Father are one and the same. That does follow, so the argument's valid. And because the argument's valid, it kind of forces the issue. If we don't want to agree with the conclusion that Christ just is the Father, that Christ and the Father are one and the same, the thing is that follows from 1, 2, and 3. If 1, 2, and 3 are all true, then 4 has to be true. So if we want to say that 4 is false, which I do, and I hope you do as well, even if you're a Trinitarian, if we want to say that 4 is false, we have to say that at least one premise is false. Because if they were all true, then 4 would have to be true. So either you accept the argument as sound, true premises implying a true conclusion, or you say the argument is valid but it's unsound, yes, it would follow if the three premises were true that the conclusion is true. However, at least one of those premises is false. So it's unsound because of a false premise. So you can deny one, you can deny two, or you can deny three. If you deny one, you're denying that there is exactly one God. Mm. Either atheism would be true or polytheism would be true. That doesn't seem like a good option for a Christian. That one's probably off the table, and I think Novation would agree. Or you could be denying that Christ is a God, or you could be denying that the Father is a God. Okay, those seem like some hard choices. What is Novation going to say? Well, we'll come back to that. But let's ask, what should a modern-day Trinitarian deny? Well, in the face of it, they ought to deny both two and three, because if they think, as Trinitarian, that the one God just is the Trinity— and neither the Father nor the Son just is the Trinity, right? There are differences between the Father and the Trinity. The Father's not tripersonal, the Trinity is tripersonal. A Trinitarian, I think, should agree that neither the Father nor the Son just is the Trinity. Okay, well, then neither one of them is a God then, because the Trinity is the only God. Now, some of them might invent a meaning of is God, which doesn't imply being a God. That can happen. 
They might think it means being a part of God or being a person within God, whatever that means. On the other hand, some Trinitarians will just accept this argument as sound. Yeah, Christ just is the Father. That's no problem. Some of them will even go ahead and assert also that Christ isn't the Father. Like, yeah, who said this was going to be coherent? It's a mystery, a doctrine involving an apparent contradiction. So there is no one sort of Trinitarian answer to this. It depends on the Trinity theory that they want to defend. And in particular, do they want to defend a coherent theory or just go for an incoherent theory? But again, which premise will Novation deny? Will he give a Trinitarian solution to this? Or will he give some other kind of solution to this argument? Because clearly he's not going to just accept the argument as sound. And clearly he doesn't suggest that the reasoning in this argument is invalid. Well, looks like he's going to have to deny two or deny three then. That Christ is a God or that the Father is a God. Which is it going to be Novation? We'll come back to this after reading his agonizing final chapter. When the Trinity's podcast returns, another sophisticated modalistic monarchian argument. Okay, this one is harder, and this one is not a direct argument where you just run straight from the premises to the conclusion. It's a kind of argument which is popular with sophisticated philosophers, but also with mathematicians and logicians. And what logicians call this type of argument is a reductio ad absurdum, a reduction to absurdity. So what they do is they say, let's assume a certain thing, and this is the thing they're trying to disprove. They're trying to show that this thing is false. Their conclusion is going to be the opposite of this thing they're starting with. So you assume a certain thing, add some undeniable premises, and then deduce a contradiction. And then you infer from that that the original assumption is false because it implies contradictions. And whatever implies a contradiction has to be false, according to, let's say, most logicians. So here's how Novation relates this argument, and then I'll give you my analysis like before. And it just immediately follows the passage I just read. It's not clear to me how well Novation distinguishes between these two arguments, but I think they really are two different arguments. If Christ is not the Father, while Christ the Son is also God, then two gods seem to have been introduced contrary to the Scriptures. That's it. That's the whole argument. One sentence. Okay. Here's my analysis. The assumption for the reduction, the thing that we're going to assume and then show that it leads to a contradiction, therefore that original thing is false. And so we're going to conclude if that original thing is false and the opposite of it is true, he's assuming that the Father and Son are distinct, that Christ and the Father are two, not one and the same. Right? So they're not related to one another like Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens are related to one another. Now the second premise is that the Son is a God. And notice that he uses the word also. The Son is also God. Who's the other one who is a God? Clearly the Father. So that's premise three. So the Son is a God and the Father is a God. How do they mean that? I think they mean it in the sense of having a divine nature. I think they're classifying. They're going to argue for an identity, but what they're saying is that each is a divine nature or each has divine nature sufficient to be a God. So I think this does represent their reasoning. Okay, so Christ and the Father are two. They're not one and the same. Each one is a God. Now, here I'm going to introduce a premise that I think that Novation and his opponents are assuming. It's something that they probably never explicitly formulated or thought about because their logic wasn't fine-grained enough to help them do this. But I think there's an implicit premise here because it's required for the argument to be valid in its first conclusion. And that is the premise that for any x and y, x and y are the same f only if x just is y. In other words, x and y are identical. So f just stands for some kind of term. So for any two things or quote two things that you can name, if they're really the same certain sort of thing, the same f, then that requires that they're one and the same. 
Right, so if Cephas and Peter are the same apostle, that can be true only if Cephas just is Peter. If Paul and Saul are the same man, that requires that Saul just is Paul. Well, yeah, those identifications are correct. Being the same something or other requires being numerically the same. That's a way to put this premise, which I have as premise four in my analysis. Or maybe, if you like, we could attribute to them a weaker premise that would still make the conclusion derivable, which would be the premise that if any X and Y are the same God, then X and Y must be one and the same. In other words, they must be numerically the same. Put differently, being the same God implies being numerically identical. Now, this is something that would follow from the more general premise that I said before, but this weaker, more specific premise would be enough for the argument to work. Therefore, the Father and Christ are not the same God. How does that follow? It does follow from 1 through 4. To be the same God, according to 4, would require being numerically identical, but according to the assumption premise 1, they're not numerically identical. Okay, well, then they're not the same God. That just follows from step one and step four in the argument. But something else follows from two, three, and five. If it's true to the Christ is a God, and three, that the Father is a God, and five, it's true that the Father and Christ are not the same God, it does follow that therefore there are at least two gods. This one's a god, that one's a god, they're not the same god. Okay, there must be at least two gods then. Maybe there's more, but at least there's two. Now let's throw in a very popular Christian premise. But there is only one god. Boom, we've got our contradiction that we were looking for. Remember, we assume that Christ isn't the Father, so that we could show that it leads to contradiction. Here's the contradiction. That there is only one god, and that it's false that there is only one god. Those are steps seven and eight in the analysis of the argument. So it's not the case that Christ and the Father are distinct. That's nine. That follows from one through eight. And therefore, final conclusion, the Son just is the Father. If they're not distinct, that's just to say that they are numerically identical. So that's the conclusion, that Christ just is the Father. And of course, vice versa, the Father just is Christ. Again, notice that the argument assumes that you think the scripture surely teaches the deity of Christ and also monotheism. Those are popular assumptions. And again, it seems the reasoning is valid. It doesn't seem there's a mistake in reasoning. We can't just say that someone's throwing a junky argument out there that's invalid. So the only way to escape the conclusion that Christ just is the Father is to deny one or more premises. Okay, what are those premises? that the Son is a God, that the Father is a God, that being the same something implies being numerically the same, or at least more specifically, being the same God requires being numerically the same. Either way, a premise like that doesn't look like a good candidate for denial. Either version that I just said, such a premise would seem to be obviously true. It's just as obvious that being the same God implies being numerically the same as it is that being the same apostle implies being numerically the same, or being the same man implies being numerically the same. And what's the last premise that a person might deny in order to escape the conclusion of this argument? It's the premise that there's only one God. Hmm. So again, pick your poison. You can deny that Christ is a God. You can deny that the Father is a God. You can deny the premise that same God implies the same. Or you can deny that there's only one God. Which will it be? What should a Trinitarian say? Arguably, they should deny two and three, because only the Trinity is God. And neither Christ nor the Father just is the Trinity. There are a small number of Trinitarians who endorse what modern philosophers call relative identity theory that would escape this argument by denying premise four. We've had a number of previous episodes on the Trinity's podcast that deal with this sort of theorizing about the Trinity. I think that arguably the most helpful one of these episodes is podcast 271, Does Your Trinity Theory Require Relative Identity? So check that out if you're thinking, like, maybe that's an attractive option. 
So here you'd be suggesting that they can be the same God, even though they're not numerically the same as one another. And again, there are some Trinitarians who just would accept that Christ and the Father are one and the same. And they might also tell you that they're distinct, too. They are and they aren't one and the same. They just have given up on the aim of coherence in their theorizing about the Trinity. But again, what does Novation say? That is the question. What is Novation saying is the answer to this sophisticated modalistic monarchian argument? Well, we'll find out eventually. When the Trinity's podcast comes back, we'll look at a short and pretty clear argument that he presents from the dynamic monarchians. So remember, the dynamic monarchians are basically ancient biblical Unitarians. They think that Christ is a man, and they don't think he's divine. They don't think he created the world or existed before his human career. God's power did those things, but that's just like an aspect or an action of God or a property of God, maybe. So here is how Novation describes an argument by the other thieves, (laughs) thieves on the other side of the question. He says, The heretics who maintain that Christ is only a man syllogize from the opposite position in the following manner. Here's the argument. If the Father is one and the Son another, and if the Father is God and Christ is God, then there is not one God, but there are two gods introduced on an equal footing, the Father and the Son. If there is one God, then Christ must be a man, so that the Father may rightly be the one God. So again, I analyze this as a reductio argument, as an indirect argument, where you assume what you're trying to disprove, and you show how that assumption will imply, with some premises, a contradiction. And then if the original assumption is proven to be false, then the opposite of that will have to be true. So here, the assumption is that Christ is a god, in the sense of classifying. Christ is divine, has divine nature, is a divine nature, has the same ontological status as the Father, is basically the point. Now we're off to the races. We're going to show how that assumption leads to a contradiction. Premise two, the Father is a god. Okay, that will be agreed, I think, by all parties in this dispute by Novation, and by the Modalistic Monarchians, and by the Dynamic Monarchians. Third premise, that Christ and the Father are distinct. Christ is one and the Father is another. They're not numerically one. Well, of course they're not. There are simultaneous differences between them. One single thing, at one single time, can't be and also not be a certain way. That's just an obvious impossibility. Now, because Christ and the Father have simultaneously differed from one another, we know that they're not one, they're two. That's what allows them to qualitatively differ at one and the same time. Christ died on a certain Friday. God did not die on that Friday. So, there too. God sent his only Son. Christ never sent his only Son. So, obviously, there too. Fourth premise. Again, I think this is implicit. It's required for the argument to be valid, but I think it's something that the dynamic monarchians likely did not have enough logic to clearly formulate, nor did Novation. So I think the assumption here, the extra premise, is for any X and any Y, and for any kind of term F, X and Y are the same F only if X just is Y. In other words, only if X and Y are numerically one. This is the same premise we encountered above. To be the same something or other requires being numerically the same. That seems like an obvious point. Bill Clinton and Slick Willie are the same president, only if Bill Clinton just is Slick Willie. Those are just two names for the same thing, right? Right. 
And as before, if you're not sure about that more general premise, we can instead make the argument valid by supplying a much weaker implicit premise, namely that for any x and any y, they're the same God only if x and y are numerically identical or numerically the same. Okay, so Christ and the Father are different, and we've just had premises that each one is a God. So because they're different, they're not the same God. That's step five in the argument that follows from three and four. And then it follows from one and two and five, that Christ is a God, the Father is God, and five, they're not the same God, that there are at least two gods. Now that does follow from what's gone before. Therefore, it's not the case that there is only one God, because if there are at least two gods, then it's false that there's only one God. Step eight is the premise that there is only one God. Okay, we've reached our contradiction. In steps seven and eight, we have just affirmed and denied exactly the same claim. And so the conclusion from all of that is that the original assumption is false. So we've just learned that Christ is a God implies a contradiction. So Christ is a God has to be false. But if Christ is a God is false, then it is true that therefore Christ is not a God. And that's the final conclusion. Here's what's so interesting about this dynamic monarchian argument. When you understand Novation's views, you can see that he agrees with all of the premises. He agrees that the Father is a God. He agrees that Christ and the Father are distinct. He seems to agree that being the same God implies being the same, like numerically the same. And he agrees that there's only one God. So, how on earth is he going to get away from the conclusion that Christ is not a God? Because that seems to follow from exactly those premises. He could try to say there's some mistake in the reasoning here, so that one of the four conclusions doesn't really follow from what was above. But that seems like a pretty hopeless task. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to fool around with a lot of rhetoric, first of all. So, come on, guys, let's believe all the scriptures. Let's not pick and choose among them like the heretics. Of course, there's only one God, and this is the Father. Yeah, of course. But we're not saying there's two gods. The Father can be the only God, even if the word God applies to Christ. He points out that the heretics themselves understand the difference between being a God and being a, quote, God. Well, sure they do. But now why not just end the book there and spike the ball? Because this is a terrible argument. He's been arguing throughout the course of the book that Christ has a divine part or a divine component. He's not real clear about that. That within him there is a divine nature because he's eternally generated by God the Father. And because of this, he has divine power and is divine to some degree. Okay, well, if he has that divine nature, then exactly why is he not a second God? He is something, Novation has argued, distinct from the Father, and he's also, in some sense, divine. And what is a God other than someone who is divine, a real being who has divine nature, or who is a divine nature, if you want to talk about natures that way? Moreover, to make the point that being called a god or a god doesn't imply being a god does nothing whatever to show what is wrong with the two modalistic monarchian arguments or the one dynamic monarchian argument that he's just laid out. He needs a principled response to both arguments, one which shows what is wrong with the arguments in question and is well motivated from the perspective of mainstream Christianity where he's assuming Logos speculations and in his interpretation of Scripture. Now, at the end of this chapter, he also gives what I'll call the Lord-Master-Good argument. And the basic point of it is that this sort of reasoning is invalid. So, in other words, you can't legitimately go from these premises to this conclusion. Again, I've got an analysis of the Lord-Master-Good argument on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So the basic point is if you say, well, there's one F, one thing of a certain sort, call it A, that's premise one, and then there's some B, which is not A, which is distinct from A, there's something else, which is rightly called, quote, F, therefore there are at least two Fs. Nope. That does not follow at all, because you can be called by a certain name and not be 
the kind of thing which is often referred to using that word. Say you have a family which is a wife, a husband, and a dog. You say, this family has only one dog. That is true. And then you say, the husband is rightly called a dog. Why? Because he cheats on his wife. You cannot conclude that there are at least two dogs in the family. We just said there's only one dog. Being referred to as a, quote, dog does not imply being a dog. The word dog can be used in various ways. It's used as a natural kind term when referring to rover, and it's used as a kind of you know insult referring to the cheating husband. Here's another example. Say you work for Big Corp, and there's only one boss of Big Corp, the CEO. However, you rightly address your direct manager that works at your branch every day as boss. It's only one boss of Big Corp, but you rightly call your direct manager boss. Therefore, there are at least two bosses of Big Corp. No, 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 that does not follow. There's only one boss of Big Corp. There are two who are called boss. There's probably more than two who are called boss. Probably other managers around the country at different branches of Big Corp are called boss. Many are called boss, sure, including the CEO. But still, there is one boss, as in like top-level boss of Big Corp. So yes, that's an invalid argument. And the reason that arguments like this are invalid is because descriptions, titles, and names can be ambiguous. Even though the CEO is the only boss, that's consistent with other people being called boss. Because you don't need to be the top boss to be addressed as, quote, boss. Everybody understands this. So Novation gives some scriptural examples, which are the terms Lord, Master, and being someone who's good, the description of good. As I just illustrated, the point is that titles and descriptions can be ambiguous. So, if God is the unique Lord, that doesn't mean that someone else, such as Christ, can't be called, quote, Lord, too. Right. If God alone is good, that doesn't mean that we can't apply the description good in other senses to ones other than God, such as the Lord Jesus Christ, as the scripture does. And even if, as it says in Matthew 23, Christ is our unique master or teacher, it doesn't follow that someone else, such as the lady who taught you kindergarten, can't be referred to as, quote, teacher. You could call her your teacher, and then you can say Christ is your only teacher. You're using the word teacher in two different meanings, right? Okay, so how does all this apply to God and Jesus? This is what he says towards the end of chapter 30 in his book. They, and he's referring to the heretics, do not think that the truth that there is one Lord is prejudiced in any way by that other truth that Christ is also, quote, Lord. I'm adding the quotation marks because I think this is his point. Nor do we think that the truth that there is one master is prejudiced in any way by the truth that Paul is also a, quote, master. Finally, neither do they assert that the truth that there is one who is good is prejudiced in any way by the truth that Christ is also called, quote, good. Let them acknowledge then by the same line of reasoning that the truth that there is one God is not prejudiced in any way by the other truth that Christ is also declared to be, quote, God. Well, sure. But the Monarchian positions don't depend on such confusions, I think. And so to point out the confusions isn't going to do a single thing to move them. But, you know, he's the only one talking, so it doesn't look stupid. My point is that the correct point that Novation is making about this sort of valid argument seems like it's irrelevant to the arguments of the Monarchians, because those arguments don't depend on the sort of mistake that he's illustrating. So I think the modalistic monarchians realize that even though there's only one God, others can be referred to as God. And I think the dynamic monarchians would recognize the same thing based on some obvious scriptural examples. If you want to dig into some of those examples, I recommend that you check out Trinity's podcast 224 called Biblical Words for God and for His Son, Part 1, God and Quote God in the Bible. Okay, so he's saying, hey, there's this stupid mistake in reasoning. Don't these people realize that you can't reason like that? 
And by going on the attack like this, he hasn't done anything to make his own view make sense. Again, he's been insisting for the whole book that Jesus is God, and he doesn't mean only that the word God can be applied to Jesus. He means that Jesus is not a mere man, and so also has, in some sense, divine nature, or is a divine nature. Okay, but then having divine nature is to be a God, and clearly Christ is not the Father, and the Father is a God. So again, it looks like you've got two gods. And that is the whole complaint of either kind of monarchian Christian in this time against the Logos theorist like Tertullian, Origen, and Novation. So he still really owes us more. To his credit, he recognizes this. And so he ends the book with a final chapter, which I'm going to read you in full. I think it's pretty agonized in its arguments, and we'll see if we can discern what his point is. And then we'll go back and see what his answer is to those three arguments propounded by the, quote, two thieves. So when the Trinity's podcast returns, you'll hear that final chapter 31. So for this, I'm using the De Simone or De Simone translation from 1974, and this is going to be the entirety of chapter 31. And ask yourself, what does this tell us about Novation's views about God and Jesus? There is then God the Father, the founder and creator of all things, who alone is without origin, invisible, immense, immortal, eternal, the one God. Nothing whatever, I will not say, can be preferred, but can even be compared to his greatness, his majesty, and his power. Of him, when he willed, the Word, who is the Son, was born. The Word is to be understood here not as a sound that strikes the air, nor the tone of the voice forced from the lungs, but rather is discerned in the substance of a power proceeding from God. Apostle has never ascertained, prophet has not discovered, angel has not fathomed, nor has any creature known the hallowed secrets of his sacred and divine birth. They are known to the Son alone, who has known the secrets of the Father. Since he is begotten of the Father, he is always in the Father. I say always, however, not in such a manner as to prove that he is unborn, but to prove that he is born. Now he who is before all time must be said to have been always in the Father, for no time can be attributed to him who is before time. He is always in the Father, lest the Father be not always the Father. On the other hand, the Father also precedes him, for as the Father he must of necessity be prior, since he who knows no origin must of necessity precede him who has an origin. At the same time, the Son must be less than the Father, for he knows that he is in the Father, having an origin, since he is born. Although he has an origin inasmuch as he is born, yet through his Father he is, in a certain manner, like him by birth, because he is born of that Father who alone has no origin. He, therefore, when the Father willed, proceeded from the Father, and he who was in the Father, because he was of the Father, was afterwards with the Father, since he, namely that divine substance whose name is the Word, through whom all things were made, and without whom nothing was made, proceeded from the Father. For all things are after him, because they are through him, consequently he is before all things, but after the Father, since all things were made through him. He proceeded from the Father, according to whose will all things were made. God, I would say, quote God, assuredly proceeded from God, constituting as Son the second person after the Father, 
but not taking from the Father that which makes him one God. If he had not been born as unborn, he would have been compared with the Father who is unborn. Since an equality would have appeared in both, he would have constituted a second unborn, and therefore two gods. If he had not been begotten, he would have been placed side by side with him who is not begotten. Since both would have been found to be equal as unbegotten, they would accordingly have given us two gods. Christ then would have given rise to two gods. If he were, as the Father, without an origin, he himself would also have proved to be, as the Father, the beginning of all things, making two beginnings. Consequently, he would have also placed before us two gods. Again, if he himself were not the Son, but a Father begetting another Son from himself, then he would have been shown to be as great as the latter. Thus, he would have constituted two fathers and approved also of two gods. If he had been invisible, he would have been compared with him who is invisible and declared equal to him. He would have placed before us two invisibles. Consequently, he would have also permitted two gods. If he, Christ, had been incomprehensible, if he had also possessed whatever other attributes belong to the Father, then we assert that he would have certainly occasioned the controversy of two gods that these heretics raise. As a matter of fact, whatever he is, he is not of himself, because he is not unborn, but is of the Father, because he is begotten. For whether he is the Word, whether he is power, whether he is wisdom, whether he is light, whether he is the Son, whatever he is of these, he is not from any other source but from the Father, as we have already mentioned above. Owing his origin to the Father, he could not cause any disunion in the Godhead, in the divine nature, by making two gods, inasmuch as he drew his origin in being born of him who is the one God. In this respect, since he is the only begotten and the firstborn of him who, because he has no origin, is alone the beginning and head of all things, he declared accordingly that God is one. And he proved that he is not subject to any origin or beginning, but rather that he is the origin and the beginning of all things. The Son does nothing of his own will or counsel, and he does not come from himself. He obeys all his Father's commands and precepts. Hence, although his birth proves that he is the Son, his docile obedience proclaims him to be the minister of the will of the Father from whom he is. While he renders himself obedient to the Father in all things, even though he is also God, also divine to some degree, Yet by his obedience, he shows that the Father, from whom he also drew his origin, is the one God. As a result, he, Christ, could never constitute a second God, because he did not constitute a second origin, inasmuch as he received before all time the source of his birth from him who has no beginning. Since what is unborn, and such is God the Father alone, who is beyond an origin, and from whom is he who is born, is the origin of all other things. He who is born of him rightly comes from him who has no origin. This proves that the unborn is the origin from which he himself is. And even though he who is born is God, is divine to some degree? Nevertheless, he shows that God is one whom he who was born has confirmed to be without origin. Therefore, he is God, divine to some degree, but begotten precisely that he might be God. So, he's divine to some degree because he's eternally begotten? He is Lord, but for this very reason, he was born of the Father that he might be Lord. He is also an angel, but an angel who has been destined by his Father to announce the great counsel of God. His divinity is so presented to us that it may not appear, 
either through discordancy or through inequality in the Godhead, in the divine nature, that there he has produced two gods. For all things have been subjected to him as son by the Father. The fact that he himself, together with all the things that are subject to him, is subject to his Father, proves that he is indeed the son of his Father. However, he is considered the Lord and God of all else. Because all subjected things are given over to him who is God, and the Son is indebted to the Father for the subjection of all things to himself, he refers back again to the Father the entire power of the Godhead, I guess of his degree of divine nature which he has. It all comes from God. Hence, here's his conclusion, hence one God is demonstrated, the true and eternal Father, from whom alone this power of the Godhead, the divine nature, is sent forth, transmitted and directed to the Son, and is returned again by communion of substance to the Father. The Son is indeed shown to be God, since it is clear that the divinity has been handed over and granted to him. Nevertheless, the Father proves to be one God, for from one order to another, that divine majesty makes its way back again to the Father and reverts to him who gave it, since the Son himself delivers it up again to him. Thus, the mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus, has power, since he is God over every creature subjected to him by his own Father, together with all creation subject to him. Found also to be in harmony with God, his Father, Christ Jesus, by abiding in him, because he also was heard, has succinctly proved that his Father is the one and only true God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what's the upshot of the chapter you just heard, and how does it relate to those three supposedly heretical arguments? What's the upshot of all that? Well, the point that he makes over and over is that the one God just is the Father. Clearly, he identifies the one God with the Father. He doesn't identify the one God also with Christ. What he's saying about Christ is that he is God in the sense of being divine to some degree because of God specifically because God eternally generates him in some mysterious sense which no one can understand. A crucial passage is that God, Christ, assuredly proceeded from God, that's the Father, constituting as Son the second person after the Father. He writes, but not taking from the Father that which makes him one God. So Christ isn't a mere man somehow because of this eternal generation. He's got divinity to some degree because of that generation, but he doesn't have godhood. He doesn't have whatever it is to make him a god, because there's only one god, and that's the Father. Put more simply, Christ is not fully divine. According to Novation, he lacks some of the essential divine attributes. The whole thrust of the chapter is that God is divine in a way that nothing else is. That is to say, the Father is divine. Or at the very beginning, The Father alone, he says, is without origin, invisible, immense, immortal, eternal, and the one God. Christ isn't any of those things. Christ is not without origin. He pounds the drum incessantly about that. He believes that there's this eternal generation thing, which is part of his Logos theory speculations that he's inherited. Only God is invisible, right? Clearly Christ is visible. Only God is immense, like I think he means that in the sense of being everywhere, whereas Christ could walk around from here to there. God is, by his essence, immortal. Christ died. He says God is eternal. In some sense, Christ is eternal, although he does also want to say in another sense that God is before him. I think he means metaphysically before him rather than before him in time. 
So God and Christ are going to be eternal in two different ways. One originated or caused by another, another without being caused by another. Lastly, the Father is the one God. Christ is not the one God, but he does think he's divine to some extent. In what way? Well, he mentions the divine attribute of being provident. He thinks Christ has been put in charge by God over the rest of creation. He thinks a degree of divinity has been given to him. And maybe based on 1 Corinthians 15, in some sense, the divinity will go back to God. Maybe just in the sense that things that have been subjected to Christ will now be directly subjected to God. And he hammers his points about the differences between God and Christ with a bunch of hypotheticals, or more specifically, counterfactuals, or more specifically, counterpossibles. What he's saying is that Christ would be a second God if Christ were unborn. He doesn't really think that's possible, but anyway, that's why it's a counterpossible statement. Christ would be a second God if he were unbegotten. Christ would be a second God if he were without origin, if he were the Father, if he were as great as the Father, if he were invisible, if he were incomprehensible. And in general, if Christ was also possessed of whatever attributes belong to the Father. So, in short, Christ is not a God for very many reasons. He's not divine in the sense that the Father is divine where that implies being a god. That's the whole thrust of the chapter. Okay, so let's go back to our three heretical arguments and see what Novation's response is supposed to be. He wasn't terribly clear about his responses in the previous chapter. He kind of just went on the attack and didn't, you know, say, I deny premise four for this and that reason, you know, which would be the clearest sort of response. But let's do that for him. So again, you might want to look at my analyses of the arguments. The first modalistic Monarchian argument, the direct argument, he denies premise two. Again, the argument is there is exactly one God. Christ is a God. The Father is a God. Therefore, Christ just is the Father. They're one and the same. He is admitting implicitly that it's valid, and he's denying that Christ is a God. Hmm. I like that response. I think that's the correct response. Clearly, there is only one God in Scripture, and clearly the Father is a God in Scripture. He's the only one. So then Christ must not be a God. To put it differently, Christ must not be divine in the way that the Father is divine. Sure. Good job, Novation. I like that. The second modalistic Monarchian argument is a complex 10-step reductio, or an indirect proof. But without reviewing that entire proof again, he's going to deny premise two, that the Son is a God. If you deny the Son as a God, you can't get to the end result that the Son just is the Father. It's just an unsound argument. It's valid in that if all the premises were true, the final conclusion would be true, but it's not sound because it's got a false premise. The Father is a God. Yes, the Son is distinct from the Father, but the Son is not a God. Nope. That's the mistake. I like this. I think he's right. I think that's the correct response to this argument. There isn't another deniable premise, right? You don't want to deny that the Father is a God. You don't want to deny that being the same God implies being identical. You don't want to deny there's only one God. Okay. Yeah, the weak premise there is that the Son is a God. Not according to the New Testament, right? If you disagree, let me invite you to check out Trinity's podcast number 124 or 334, or my lecture on YouTube called God and His Son, The Logic of the New Testament. And I've got links for all of these on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. And again, there's a nine-step dynamic Monarchian argument. How is he going to respond to this? Let's just briefly review that argument so we can see how Novation responds to it. He's assuming for the reduction to absurdity that Christ is a God. So that's what we're going to show leads to a contradiction. Step two is the premise that the Father is a God. Step three, that Christ and the Father are numerically distinct. They're not one and the same, right? Of course they're not. Premise four, to be the same, any sort of thing implies being numerically the same, right? So in particular, being the same God requires being the same. And that follows from that, that the Father and Son are not the same God, And then it follows from what we've said so far, that there are at least two gods. They're not the same god, yet each is a god, so there are at least two gods. If there are at least two gods, it's false that there is only one god. 
And then step eight is the Christian and Jewish premise that there is only one God. So there's the contradiction, seven and eight. It's not the case that there's only one God and there is only one God. And so we have to deny our assumption that Christ is a God, which is to say that Christ is not a God. That's the final conclusion. What does Novation think about this argument? He thinks it's a sound argument. He thinks it's true that the Father is a God. He thinks it's true that Christ is distinct from the Father. He thinks that being the same God requires being one and the same thing. He thinks there's only one God. He's just simply endorsing this argument as sound. Well, that's kind of interesting. I mean, he doesn't exactly advertise that. He just simply thinks this argument of the dynamic monarchians is sound. But that is what he thinks. Maybe that's why he doesn't return to these arguments after giving you all his Logos theory goodness in the last chapter. Goodness, I should put in quotes. I mean, it's very speculative stuff. Now, he has other speculations about Jesus. He will agree that Jesus is a man or that he's human, but he's not going to agree that he's a, quote, mere man. Okay, but he agrees that he's not divine in the sense that the one God, the Father, is divine. Well, that's the point of this argument. In Novation's view, everything in this argument is true, including the conclusion. It's just that he also wants to say that Christ is divine in some lesser sense that doesn't imply that he's a god. So the modalistic arguments have a false premise. The dynamic monarchian argument, interestingly, according to him, is just simply a sound argument. There's nothing wrong with the reasoning and the premises are all true and it shows the conclusion to be true. Good for those dynamic monarchians. And that is why this is a Unitarian Christian book. It's a Unitarian Christian book of the subordinationist variety. You might anachronistically and misleadingly call this an Arian book. I wouldn't call it that. But what I would say is that this book shows that according to the emerging mainstream theology of its time, mid-200s, the view is that, yeah, the dynamic monarchians are simply correct about the one God. It's the Father alone. Now, of course, Novation has little time for their view that Christ is a, quote, mere man, and he probably knows about, but just doesn't really want to get into their way of reading John 1. He does love to appeal to his Logos theory interpretation of John 1. He knows they don't agree with that. He says in passing at the start of chapter 31 that the word is to be understood here not as a sound that strikes the air, nor the tone of the voice forced from the lungs, but rather is discerned in the substance of a power proceeding from God. I think by a power there, he means a powerful thing, a powerful being. So yeah, he's heard talk that this word is not a thing in addition to God, but he just doesn't want to go into it. This was the state of Logos theory in his time. There's some arrogance and laziness here in interacting with rival views. There's a certain degree of just dismissing them as just obviously wrong. I'll tell you, I think those dynamic monarchians were correct about John 1. If you want to hear my reasons for that, then on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, I'll embed the YouTube video of my keynote address at the first conference of the Unitarian Christian Alliance last year. It's called What John 1 Meant. And I think the Logos theorists just get it wrong, as do current-day Trinitarians. I think the dynamic monarchians got it right. So yeah, it's a Unitarian Christian book of the subordinationist kind. That's why famous Unitarian Christian Dr. Samuel Clark, Anglican minister and priest, loved this book by Novation on the Trinity and repeatedly quotes from it in the original Latin in his lost classic book called The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity first published in 1712. And again, on the blog post for this episode, I'll post a photograph there for my own first edition copy of the book of Samuel Clark quoting and translating a passage from this book by Novation. It's a Unitarian work. It's not exactly my type of Unitarian theology and Christology, but it is Unitarian. Isn't it interesting that you could be that sort of Unitarian and have almost been Pope in the middle of the 200s AD. This week's thinking music has been the track Initial Bridge by Koi Discovery. 
As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.